Good evening, everybody. Welcome to Coffee House Theology. Um, I'm Brian Ball, uh, one of the one of the teachers here. Um, just talked to Jay. He is boarding a plane in Newark Airport, uh, getting ready to be, I think, in the air for 15 or 16 hours uh, down to Johannesburg to head down to South Africa. He got he got on one of the new. There's a new direct flight from Newark down to South Africa, so it's one of the longest flights in the world. So uh, pray for him. I think Aaron Bryan, our campus pastor up at Ave South, is going with him and, and another group. So keep them in your prayers for safe travels and for the kingdom, kingdom uh, accomplishments when they're down there. Um, I'm really impressed that, it was, that y'all knew I was teaching. And not only that, I was teaching Job and you showed up anyway. That is, that is bold. Okay, that is bold right there. Um, but this is, uh, this is a unique piece of scripture. This is a unique book. And uh, what I hope we go through tonight is, is a way, is a, is what the handout is meant to be more than a, a kind of you know, walk through Job is more of a rubric, a, a way of structuring Job so that it's easier to understand. Because it's written in a way that's very foreign to us. We're going to get into that in just a second. But uh, let's see, tonight, let's, go, let's get our technical stuff down, right? So the Slido, if you want to ask questions, uh, you go to slido.com on your phone or on your uh, tablet and then put in this room number, which is F915. And then you can ask questions. You can also go on there and like questions in case somebody asks another question. That'll bring it up to the top. Uh, I'm going to be teaching until Saturday. And so we probably won't have time for Q&A. Just kidding. Yeah, y'all look kind of stunned. Like, I think he's serious. Um, so we'll, we'll do the best, we'll do the best we can. Um, this, this is a lot of material, um, but I I hope we do it in a way that honors God and that we can see Christ in this and, and, uh, leave different than we came in. So let's, let's pray and get started. Father God, we're thankful. We're thankful for your grace. We're thankful for your son that saves us. Uh, we're thankful for your word, father, even, even difficult, uh, uh, passages like the book of Job. That's, that's different to our ears, father, but help us hear your voice clearly. You, You say in James, if you lack wisdom, ask God who gives freely. And so father, we, we need your wisdom and your spirit and your insight to understand these things and to see your kingdom purposes, Father, so that, so that we can go and live more like Jesus, so that the world can see your glory more clearly through our lives. And so, Father, change us. Let us encounter your word, your truth, and let us be different people that walk out of here than walked in. Because every time we encounter Jesus, Father, we should be different. And so change us tonight, Father. Uh, bless the reading of your word, and it's in the precious name of Christ Jesus that we pray. Amen. All right. So our little background piece, right? We as a body of believers are walking through the, the Bible together in 2020. And in Coffee House Theology, we're, we will survey the current readings. And we're currently reading Job, if you're going along with us, right? Um, and discuss what they mean and what that meaning applies to us. And the emphasis is on, right, you can know the Bible and not know the Word as the Word is Christ Jesus. Right? You can, you can win Bible jeopardy and still not know Jesus. And so what we want to know is the Word. Right? We want to understand and the Holy Spirit enable us to understand the word. Well, we've gone through Genesis, the whole thing of Genesis in what, three weeks? So we'll cover that in great depth. Um, but it, 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 as Jay said, it, it's really fascinating to take these big overviews and see how things connect, to see how the stories mesh together, to see this beautiful, you know, what we call a meta-narrative, right? A story above the story and see that meta-narrative Jesus work throughout scripture. Um, and then we come to Job. Um, 
the name for the book Job is debated as being a Hebrew or an Aramaic word, or if it's Hebrew, it means persecuted one. Uh, scholars think it's more likely to be Arabic, in which case it's, it means to come back or repent, and therefore the book could be named Repentant One. Both meanings are certainly applicable to the work, right? Um, as we see Job. We don't know the author of Job. Uh, their suggestions include Job himself, Elihu, and Moses. Um, when was it written? And this is, this is really pretty fascinating. It was... Um, it's, it was written about the same time as Genesis and may be the oldest book in scripture. And I, I believe that's fascinating to stop and think that the oldest book in scripture is a book of unmerited suffering. And as we'll come to see, it's actually not a book about unmerited suffering, but a book about the sovereignty of God. Right, that is, Genesis was a statement of how we, who we are in light of God. This is, this is a unique statement of who God is and particularly unique among the time period when it was written in the 1500, 1600, 1700 BC. Um, the reasons we think that was, and I, uh, one of the commentaries had a pretty cool list. It said uh, Job lived uh, 140 years after the events of the book, which is, I think, 4216. His lifespan must have been close to 200 years, and that fits the patriarchal period, as Abraham lived 175 years. Job's wealth was measured in terms of livestock rather than gold and silver. Right, so gold and silver had not come in as a currency, had not come in as a way of valuing wealth. Uh, like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Job is the priest in his family and offers sacrifices. So he's certainly before the priestly systems went in. Right? Um, there are no references to Israel, the Exodus, Mosaic Law, or the Tabernacle. Uh, fitting Abraham's time, the social unit in Job is the patriarchal family clan. Right? So that because the unit was his family, right? That was the, the basic unit, and that was a very patriarchal era. Uh, structure. The Chaldeans who murdered Job's servants in 117 are nomads and have not yet become city dwellers, right? Because later on the Chaldeans are, uh, occupy a land and build cities. Job uses the characteristic patriarchal name for God, Shaddai, the Almighty, 31 times. The early term is found only 17 times in the rest of the Old Testament. Uh, the rare use of, of the Yahweh, the Lord, also suggests a pre-Mosaic date. Um, and then Ezekiel 14, and then Ezekiel 14, 14 and 20, and then James all show that Job was probably a historical person, right? Because there's debate on whether this is just some kind of mythology. This, this probably was a historical account of some kind. Did they speak to each other in poetry? Probably not. We, I used to jokingly tease my uh, college, I guess they were young adult Bible study, that they had to present their um, prayer request in the form of a sonnet. They were unimpressed. Um, anyway, so yeah, so they probably didn't speak to each other in prose, but that was the, the structuring of the arguments uh, in, in a literature. Because Job is a brilliant work of theology and literature. It is a brilliant work of theology and literature. And there is, we could go on for a long time looking at the different chiastic structures, that there are parts that echo one another, there are parts that are parallels, there are parallels that are in contrast. It, it is a beautifully written book. Have you found it incredibly hard to read? Yeah, Jay's been getting a lot of that feedback. To be honest, I'm now reading, reading through the Bible with this. This is the third time I've read the book in the last three weeks. Uh, the first time I read it in one sitting, I got nothing out of it. It was like water falling on asphalt, right? It just kind of rolled off into the drain. And so then I found some of the structures that we're getting ready to see in this handout. And they really helped me 
formulate and understand how Job was written and why Job is structured the way it is. And the second time I went through it made a lot more sense. This third time going through, so apparently it takes me three times to catch on to something. So you know, my third time going through, it, I, I really am beginning to see how this thing's architected, how this is put in. So um, I've got the where's the land of us. Let's go to the what. So flip over your, flip over your handout. And Job is written in an Eastern style. Remember, Jay's talked to us about the difference in kind of Western and Eastern thinking, right? Western thinking is linear, right? We go and we break down the problem and we solve the problem. We kind of expect because Job has a problem, there's some kind of linear solution. So they're just breaking down the problem for Job and eventually they land a solution in chapter 42, right? That is not what they're doing. That is not what they're doing, right? Eastern thinking is circular. You think about reincarnation, right? What's reincarnation? Right? Circular. Right, what's karma? Circular, right? And so that, the Eastern thinking, and so what, what happens is there's actually these three circles of argument within Job. And if you don't know that structure, it's very confusing. Right, it's very, very confusing. And so I loved this, di- I found these two diagrams in, in one of the commentaries, I thought they were terribly helpful. So every time Bildad starts to speak, it opens up a new cycle. Right? And so there's these three cycles and, and basically each of the cycles is an argument to Job and Job argues a different thing in each cycle. Right? The first cycle he argues, you get, right, you act as my judge. Right? The second cycle is the Lord is my judge. Right? And the third cycle is the Lord is my refuge. And we're going to go out and draw out where these cycles are. And you'll, you'll see that, uh, you will hopefully see that this makes, makes a lot more sense as, as we go through these structures. The other thing that helped me a lot was this, what, are, what were the characteristics of Job's friends in Elihu? Right? And this is, the, this is that second table down there. And it's, it's fascinating, right? Eliphaz was a theologian, right? He used observation and experience. And so as we listen to what he says, think, think about how he's speaking from observation and experience. He's actually kind of considerate of Job. Now, by the end, right, by the third pass through this, you kind of feel like you're at a bad Greek wedding where everybody's throwing dishes, right? I mean, I mean, people are pretty upset at that point. They're, they're really not being very nice to each other, right? It's, it's pretty, it's the emotional intensity builds up with each cycle, right? And so that third cycle, it is, it is just crazy, right? It is just crazy. But even through that, Eliphaz stays fairly considered. His, his whole argument is if you sin, you suffer, right? If you sin, you suffer. Is that true? Yeah, is that helpful? No, that's not helpful, right? We're kind of going to get into things that, you know, that are true that aren't particularly helpful to people who are suffering, right? There are things you can say that are true that are not helpful, right? I've found out that a lot with my wife. And I've said a lot of true things that were not particularly helpful. That did not work out well for me. Ugh. All right. And so only the, right, his advice goes only the wicked suffer. So what does that imply? You're suffering, therefore, you're wicked. Was Job wicked? Nope. He was righteous. Why was he righteous? Because of what he did? Nope. Because God said so. Let me ask a question, those of us who are saved. You righteous? Answer is yes. You know why you're righteous? Because God said so. You don't get to pick who you are, right? Job even says, we're gonna get to this. He says, look, if I sin, I don't take away from God. He said, if I do good, I don't add to him, right? You are righteous 
Because God says you're righteous. Who we are precedes what we do. That's unique to Christianity. Who we are precedes what we do. We don't act and are therefore defined by our actions. We know who we are in Christ and therefore we go act like it. That's what we've taught our children. This is who you are. Now go act like it. This is who you are. Now go act like it. That's what God does for Job in this, right? And you've got to pick that up from the beginning because that's a key theme that's running through this whole thing. All right, uh, we got this, we'll get his key verses here in a little bit. Concept of God is righteous, punishes the wicked, and blesses the good, right? Um, and then his name means God is gold or God dispenses judgment. Uh, fun name. That's what you always want to name your kid is God dispenses judgment ball. Uh, so Bildad, right? He's a historian and a legalist. That's a fun guy. Um, it relies on tradition. And it's fascinating to, to listen to him talk about the past, to talk about the traditions, that things are established in tradition. We as church people, those of us that grew up in the church, tend to do that, right? And Jesus says, be really careful about the traditions you carry forward because they may speak against Scripture. Be really careful on the, on the traditions because those traditions can trip you up. His personality is argumentative, and that is an understatement. Uh, he's the voice of history, and he basically tells him, you must be sinning, right? For all this calamity to fall on you, there is no choice. You must be sinning. There's no other reason that would be. Uh, his, his advice is the wicked always suffer. So that's also tremendously helpful. Uh, his concept of God is as a judge and an immovable lawgiver, and his name means son of contention, which is another fun thing to name your child. All right, so Zophar is the moralist and the dogmatist, right? He relies on assumption, which is a fabulous place to argue from. Uh, he is rude and blunt, as most assumptionists are, which is a, right, a major rhetorical tool we are currently seeing uh, in, our, in our public theater, which leads to rudeness and bluntness. Uh, he's the voice of, orth- voice of orthodoxy. Right? That's pretty fascinating. <laughs> His argument is, you are sinning. Right? You are sinning. And the wicked are short lived. And his concept of God is unbending and merciless. That, that's got to be fun. And his rough or chirper is what his name means. And then Elihu, right? He's the young theologian. He's the intellectual. Right? Comes out, I let all you old people speak. You know, I've tried to hold my tongue, and now, now here I am. Um, he relies on education, on what he, on, on understanding, right? And he is, he, uh, his personality is perceptive with a good deal of conceit. And we will see that in the words that he says, right? He's the voice of logic. Um, his argument is God purifies and teaches. Now, his, his problem is his confidence in himself, right? And he makes the same arguments that the other three make in a, in a much more subtle way because he comes back to humble yourself and submit to God. Um, and uh, he's a disciplinarian, and his, compliment, his concept of God is disciplinarian teacher, and uh, his name means he is my God. All right. Whew. So let's get to the scripture, and what I'm going to do is we'll read Job 1 and 2 and kind of set things up, and then what I'd like to do is go through each of the arguments, each, each of the chapters, and I'm going to give you a couple key verses and talk about what those chapters talk about. Um, I've... I've reconstructed this teaching several different ways. And the, the, this seems to be the, the most coherent way to get through the scriptural material we need to in the time allotted and still get kind of the understanding of, of what we're walking through here. So um, open your Bibles to Job 1. And I'll take a drink of water and we'll, uh, we'll get rolling. All right. 
there was a man in the land of Uz. And by the way, Uz is Edom. Uh, it's about it's southeast of the uh, Dead Sea. So um, this is the Edomites, right? We, as they keep coming back, uh, I mean, all the way into the New Testament, they're, they're, they're around, right? Whose name was Job, and the man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to, to, to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. So Job offered sacrifices for the possibility that his children might have sinned. Not just for his own sin. Right, for the possibility that his children, I mean, that's kind of a standard of righteousness, right? When you, when you think about it in Old Testament terms, that is just a beyond belief, right, level of righteousness. So we can see why this has God's attention. One of the interesting things, right, if this was written about the time of the patriarchs, was Job a Jew? No. A couple of interesting questions come up to that, right? So we have a Yahweh worshiper authentic Yahweh worshiper who's not in the line of Abraham. That's pretty wild. Second of all, how did this get canonized? Right? How did this get brought? If you, when you think of it, this is kind of an odd addition to scripture. Right? To have a non-Jewish Yahweh worshiper as one of the earliest books in scripture. I, just, I think that's just fascinating in the, descript, in the description and kind of how he lands here. All right. So Satan is allowed to test Job. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him on earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only let only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. That's pretty fascinating. Right? Note where Satan is walking to and fro on the earth. You know what he's doing now? Walking to and fro on the earth. Just in case you're wondering. Right? Now there was a day when the sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in the oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job that said the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabians fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep. Wow. 
and, and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another who said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people. And they are dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Life is pretty fragile. Right? Because we put our faith in lots of different things. But it can all go away in a minute, in an instant. And that's what happened with Job. So what was Job's reaction? Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. He mourned. Right, towards robe, but he worshiped and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I sh- I re- shall I return. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Wow. Right? The reaction of a faithful man, even to the loss of his family. It wasn't just his stuff, even to the loss of his family. And his reaction is, that was the Lord's grace to me, right? That was the Lord's grace to me. And so I didn't, I didn't do anything to deserve it. And so when it's taken away, right? Was Job still righteous? Did Job's circumstance impact his righteousness? Right? Job was righteous when he had a bunch of stuff. Job was righteous when he didn't have anything. And Job was righteous when it all came back. Because why is Job righteous? God said so. So your righteousness is independent of your circumstances. We don't tend to believe that, right? Kinda. Kinda. Right when bad bad things befall somebody, and their tendency to go, "What have you done?" Hmm. All right. So again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came among them to present himself before the Lord. It's also pretty interesting that Satan enters the presence of the Lord. Right. That's that's pretty fascinating. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. He still holds fast to his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin, all that a man has, he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, he is yours, only spare his life. Do you see the ends to which we go to at the end of life to stay alive? Uh, Both of my parents have passed away and I watch them offer extraordinary means to keep them alive. And what we told them was, that's, that's not how, we, we live by quality of life, not quantity. Both my parents were saved. 
My, my mom actually told the doctor they were going to have to do an excruciating procedure, and the doctor told her, and, you know, if we don't do this procedure in 24 hours, you'll go into shock, and in 48 hours, you'll be dead. And mama looked the doctor square in the eye and said, the preacher needs to come by tonight. Hmm. But that's faith. Right? That's faith. Right? The preacher needs to come by tonight. Right? My life is not my own. My life is Jesus. I'm here as long as he wants me to be here. When he no longer wants me to be here, I assure you I'll be with him. And I'm, I'm good. I'm good being with Jesus. I mean, I love my family. Love you guys. Y'all are wonderful. I'll be here as long as he has something for me to do, but I'm good to be with Jesus. I'm good to be with him whether I'm here or whether I'm there. Right? That's what saving is. That's what saving is. All right, so only spare his life, right? Because his life was God's. Right? Because his life was God's. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the soles of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to, escape, to scrape himself while he was in the ashes. Then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. That's helpful. All right, that's, that's helpful. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women who speak, would speak. Um, shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Did you know there's a qualifier there? What did it say the first time? Job did not sin. What did it say the second time? Job did not sin with his lips. Hmm. Hmm. Now, now, when Job's three friends had heard of all the evil that had come upon him, they came each from their own place. Eliphaz the Temanite, Bilhad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. They made an appointment together to come to show with him sympathy and comfort him. So they were coming with the right intentions, right? You can go to somebody with the right intentions and say the wrong things, right? I've done that about a billion times in my life, right? You can go with the right intention and say the wrong thing. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him, right? And they raised their voices and wept and tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights and no one spoke a word to him for they saw the suffering was very great. All right, sometimes all you have to do is be there. All right, we call in our house of ministry presence. Sometimes there's a lot of Jesus and you just showing up. All right, sometimes there's a lot of Jesus and you just showing up. You don't have to say anything. I was a deacon for many years back at the Brentwood campus. And when you go visit those hospital rooms, you would walk into situations where there are not words. And I was there when people got diagnoses. I was there as, as people died. I was there in all kinds of different circumstances. And there is nothing to say. There is nothing to say. And so you stand there and you hold their hand. And you stand there and you weep with them. Right? You weep with those who weep. You mourn with those who mourn. Right, but they provided the ministry of presence. These guys were trying to help. Okay, we're getting ready to, their worldview is off. And what's kind of ironic, right, is they, they profess to be Yahweh worshipers. But they don't understand who Yahweh is. Right? Isn't that fascinating? Because these friends all recognize God, right, talking his power. Talk about his power. But they don't understand who God is and how God relates to us. All right. So here, come the, here comes the first lap, right? So we're in the first cycle. The first cycle of Job goes from chapter 3 to chapter 14. 
Please have your seat belts on and your tray tables in the upright and locked positions. So Job begins cursing both the day of his conception and the day of his birth. Job 3.1, let the day perish on which I was born. Notice he's not cursing God, right? But he's cursing the day he was conceived and the day he was born, saying it would have been better for him to stay in darkness. Um, Job at no time indicates he would end his life, but that he does want to be in Sheol, the place of the dead. And he says, why is light given to him who has been misery? The, and, and life to the bitter in soul who long for death, but it comes not and dig for it more than, than have hidden treasures who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave. So Eliphaz responds, right, by saying the innocent do not suffer and calls Job foolish, encouraging him to appeal to God. Uh, that's that's eight through eight through seventeen, and not despise God's discipline. Eliphaz presents that through his experience and his observation. Remember a little table, right? Through his experience and his observation. Experiences four twelve through twenty one. Observations five one through seven. He ends with assurance that God will treat him fairly. Eliphaz's argument essentially reinforces Satan's words. Job will give anything for his life. Right? And the key verse, if a killy fast key verse is Job 4 8, which is, As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. Um, and then uh, Job 5 3, he says, I have seen the fool taking root, but suddenly I cursed his dwelling. And uh, his assurance of God's, uh, God's goodness is 517. Behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves. Therefore, despise not the discipline of the Almighty. Right, so, that's making right. so Job appeals to his friends and he's appealing to his heaviness. Right In Job 6, 2 and 3, he says, Oh, that my vexation, vexation were weighed and that and all my calamity laid in the balances. For then it would be heavier than the sand of the sea. Therefore, my words have been rash. Right, he talks about his bitterness, which is, uh, for arrows of the Almighty are in me. My spirit drinks their poison. The terrors of God are arrayed against me. And his hopelessness, right, which are 6 through 14 of his suffering. Job points out the ineffectiveness of his friend's ministry. Right, he says, he who withholds kindness from a friend forsakes the fear of the Almighty. My brothers are treacherous as a torrent bed, as torrential streams that pass away. Remember we talked about the wadi, those, those streams that would just appear in the middle of the desert and wash everything away? He said, you're like that. You just, you're just destroy, all you do is come in and, and destroy these things. Right? You're, you're just not being helpful. Which again, you can go in with the right intentions and not be helpful. Um, and he seeks their sympathy, right? That's Job 6, 24. Teach me and I will be silent. Make me understand how I have gone astray, right? And Job appeals to the Lord, describing the futility and brevity of life. So if he has sinned, deal with it now and my time is brief, right? And that's Job 7, 1. Has, man, uh, has not man a hard service on earth and are not his days like the days of a hired hand? So now Bildad comes and speaks with three logical arguments. He argues with the for the character of God, which is 8, 1 through 7. And 8, 3 says, does God pervert justice or does the Almighty pervert the right? right? He argues from the wisdom of the past, right? for, inquir for inquire, please, of bygone ages, Job 8, 8, and consider what the fathers have searched out. Right? And then he, and he has the evidence in nature. He says, where, where is my strength that I should ate, where, that I should wait? And 
what is my end that I should be patient? Is the strength not the strength of stones or my flesh bronze? Um, In the argument of God's character, Bildad rightly describes God's holiness and justice, but seems to have forgotten his love, mercy, and goodness. We do that sometimes, right? Justice for everybody else and mercy for me. Right? We're, we're big on justice for everybody else. Right? And that's, that's where he goes wrong. Whereas Eliphaz appeared to observation experience, here Bildad appeals to tradition. He walks through examples of nature to demonstrate the cause and effect that he misapplies. Because right? they, they, we'll get into this at the end, right? There's a, they believe in this reciprocal relationship. Right? That, you do, bad, that you, know, you do bad things and bad things happen. That there's some kind of law of morality and then if you do good things for God, God will do good things for you. Right? So Job's response discusses the justice of God and asks three questions. How can I be righteous before God? And Job 9, 1 and 2 says, Then Job answered and said, Truly I know it is so, but how can a man be in the right before God? Right? How can I meet God in court? Which is always a... And this is, and this is where the self-righteousness of Job starts to show in, right? How can I meet God in court and why was I born? Right, Job ten eighteen. Why did you bring me out of the womb? Would that I had died before any eye had seen me. The first is not a question of salvation, but a question of vindication. Right, when when he asks, when his first question is of how can I be righteous before God? That's not a question of salvation. It's a question of vindication. He wants to vindicate his righteousness. That makes sense. That's different than being saved, right? That God is righteous and so I'm saved. This is, this is, this is to vindicate his, his righteousness. Um, you know, how can I be declared innocent? The second plays out in wishing an arbiter existed between Job, between them, because Job is in no way God's equal. He says, I wish there was an arbiter right between us. Um, Chapter 10 has Job addressing God rather than his friends, asking if God is going to destroy him. Why was Job born at all? If all you were going to do is make me to destroy me, why am I here at all? So Zophar speaks a short, angry answer. (laughs) First saying, Job is guilty, uh, which is one through four, calling Job a windbag. Always helpful when someone's suffering. Call them a windbag. Zophar says Job is, is ignorant of God, which is 11, 5 through 12. And 5 and 6 says, but oh, that God would speak and open his lips to you and that he would tell you the secrets of his wisdom. For he is manifold in understanding. Know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. Whatever is happening to you is not as bad as it should be. Also a helpful thing to say to a suffering person. Outstanding. Um, golly. You kind, of, you kind of think you're making this stuff up, and then it's there in the scripture. He asserts Job is stubborn and should repent, right? If you prepare your heart, he will, you will stretch out your hands toward him. If iniquity is in your hand, put it far away and let not injustice dwell in your tents, right? Job 11, 13, and 14. That Job again should bargain with God to get out of his troubles. That Job should bargain with God to get out of his troubles. Do we bargain with God? Yes, unrighteously, right? If you'll just, anybody ever said that? Or just, is it just me, right? If you, if you, God, if you'll just, right? Like I say, you kind of wish you could kind of, yeah. 
Some of these hit a little close to home when you start kind of, right? When you start pulling these texts out, do you see the humanity in this? I mean, I know it's embedded in this Hebrew prose. It's embedded this cyclical narrative, but do you see how human this is? Do you hear these voices when you suffer? Do you hear these voices when you suffer? We all do. So Job answers in three parts. First, declaring God's greatness and sovereignty in chapter 12. Right, God, Job 12, 13, right? God, with God are wisdom and might. He has counsel and understanding. Even nature, right, testifies to God's greatness, right? Job 12, 7 and 8. But ask the beasts and they will teach you. The birds of the heavens and they will tell you. Or the bushes of the earth and they will teach you. The fishes of the sea will declare to you, right? All of nature reveals. Remember Romans? We're, out with, we're without excuse. All of nature reveals God. Isn't that beautiful? And that's, that's just awesome. All right. So uh, chapter 13 declares Job faithfulness, face Job's faithfulness, culminating in the famous verse 15, right? Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Most people don't read the backside of that verse. Yet I will argue my ways to his face. Right? So Job is faithful to God, but he's still hung up on his self-righteousness, right? Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Right? In, in this chapter, Job declares his disappointment in his friends, uh, 13, one through 12, and his faith in God, 13, and that's, which is the 13.5, right? And his desire for both removal of God's chastening and that would, God would come to a way to Job in a way that wouldn't frighten him. Uh, Job expresses his hopelessness in chapter 14, right? Um, one of my favorite passages in scripture is Job 14, seven through nine. It says, for there is hope in a tree. If it is cut down, that will sprout again and that its shoots will not cease. Though its roots grow, though its root grow old in the earth and its stump die in the soil, yet at the scent of water, it will bud and put out branches like a young plant. What does water smell like? Nothing. You ever, you ever been to a pure by pure brook by, by where spring water's coming out? But at the scent of water, at the smallest thing, the fig tree will bud. Isn't that beautiful? Though the tree is cut down at the scent of water, the fig tree will bud. Hmm. And that's the conclusion of the first cycle. Did they be okay? Does that make more sense going through it this way with the cycle and, and pulling out kind of what these meanings are? Is this, is this helpful? Because we're getting ready to do it two more times. <laughs> so if it's not helpful, we might as well close up, head over to the donut den or something. All right. So we good? Yeah. I mean, like I said, I know it's, I know it, it, it's hard in prose, but I think as we pull it out into this stuff, it, it, it's made more sense to me. All right. So the second cycle is Job 15 to 21. Uh, Eliphaz opens the second cycle of the discussion and he turns up the emotional heat. <laughs> um, his opening discourse divides into Job lacking wisdom, therefore God will judge the wicked. 
Again, more helpful rhetoric, right? Uh, Job 15, 2 through 6. Should a wise man answer with windy knowledge and fill his belly with the east, with the east wind? Should he argue in unprofitable talk or in words with which he can do no good? But you are doing away with the fear of God and hindering meditation before God. For your iniquity teaches your mouth and you choose the, ch- the tongue of the crafty. Your own mouth condemns you, not I. Your own lips testify against you. Wow. And therefore God will judge the wicked, right? 1520, the wicked man rides in pain all his days through all the years that are laid up for the ruthless. So Eliphaz continues to emphasize that we should serve God for what we get out of it, not for who God is, right? If you're following God because you're gonna get into heaven, that's the reason you're following God, you're not actually following God. We'll get to that in a minute. That leads to obedience out of fear. We call it in our family forced external compliance, right? Well, we've watched a lot of parents in the church teach their kids forced external compliance. It mattered more of what they did and how they, dis- how they showed what the family's name was than what they actually believed, right? That's forced external compliance. What happens when the force is gone? So is the external compliance, right? We know lots of kids that go to college and blow up, right? Because what they were doing while they were in your house, while they were in my house, was forced external compliance. We've worked really, really hard with our sons to be sure that their faith is their faith and not some kind of compliance to what we want. And that's really hard as a parent. That's really hard as a parent. Right? But we see so much of forced external compliance as opposed to change of heart. Mm. Eliphaz concludes his argument with the wicked art will be punished, which is true, but will not always happen in this life. Right? The rain falls on the just and the unjust. Right? We see the wicked prosper. Right? At least we don't see that anymore, Right? Yikes. All right. Yeah, we'll just leave that without comment. Um, so Job responds with how miserable his friends are. Um, Job 16.2, I have heard many such things, miserable comforters are you all. Again, this emotional, like I say, you, you get somebody's thrown a plate by now, right? You kind of get the feeling from the emotional intensity. Somebody's thrown something. Um, Chapter 16 ends with a plea for justice followed by Job's plea for death. And for that's where his hope lays, right? Job 17, one, my spirit is broken. My days are extinct. The graveyard is ready for me. So Bildad pipes in with a passionate speech about the dread of death for the wicked, giving four vivid pictures in a light put out, a traveler trapped, a criminal punished, and a tree rooted up. While Bildad spoke to the wrong man because Job was righteous for God and with the wrong motive because he didn't have any love in his heart, his words were accurate, just not helpful. Right? His words were accurate, just not helpful. Right? At Job 18, 5 and 6, right? Indeed, the light of the wicked is put out and the flame of the fire does not, the flame of his fire does not shine. The light is dark in his tent and the lamp above him is put out. 
Job 18, 9, a trap seizes him by the heel, a snare lays hold of him. And Job 18, 16 through 18, his roots dry up beneath and his branches wither above. His memory perishes from the earth and he has no name in the street. He is thrust from light into darkness and driven out of the world. Job's response walks through the trials of life, ending in isolation. Um, Job 21, 22 says, have mercy on me, have mercy on me, O you my friends, for the hand of God has touched me. What do you like God? Why do you like God pursue me? Why are you not satisfied with my flesh? Right. And there's a, there's a progression in this. In 1925, he said, in Job 19, he says, for I know that my redeemer lives and at last he will stand up for me. It's interesting that he went from in, in nine, at the end of nine, he asked for an umpire, right? Somebody to, somebody to call right, right and wrong. Um, in the, in 16, he asked for an advocate and now he asked for a redeemer. Right? It's this, it's this cyclical thing. And he's hitting the same point at a deeper level. Right? It's not that I need somebody to tell me what's good and bad, not even somebody to advocate my position. I need somebody for redemption. Right? I need to be, I need to be redeemed. So Zophar repeats the refrain that the time of the wicked is short, uh, 24 through 11. Their pleasure is temporary and their death is painful. Uh, Job 24 and 5, do you not know this form of old since man was placed on the earth that the exalting, exalting of the wicked is short and the joy of the godless but for a moment? And Job 20, 27 through 29, the heavens will reveal his iniquity and the earth will rise up against him. The possessions of his house will be carried away, dragged off in the day of God's wrath. This is the wicked man's portion from God, the heritage decreed for him by God. So Job answers by appealing to their sympathy, right? That's the first, first six verses of 21. He says, the wicked will have a long life, but the saddest thing is they can leave God out of their life and still prosper here, right? And that's Job. They spend their days in prosperity. In peace, they go to Sheol. They say to God, depart from us. We do not desire the knowledge of your ways. You can have all the worldly success you want, but without God, it's meaningless. Do you see what happens to athletes and movie stars? that have everything in the universe without God and it's meaningless, right? Business people, doctors, right? Business owners, right? They have everything in the world but God and it's worthless, right? Job complains that the liquid do, that the wicked, that the wicked do not often experience calamity. He ends his talk with the wicked die like everyone else. Job asks his friends in verse 31 that if the wicked person's end, if they believe this is the wicked person's end, have they ever told me, which is a fascinating thing. So you believe the wicked person is going to die and have this horrible death. Have you ever actually told them that? Isn't that a fascinating question for him to ask? ask? If that's what you actually believe, right? Is that pen, a pen and teller that asked that? That's out of Christians, he said, because he, he's an atheist. He said, look, do you, if you really believe hell is what it is, if you really believe hell is as bad as it is, how much do you have to hate me to not tell me about Jesus? Right? If, if that's where you really think I'm going, right? if you saw somebody stepping out in front of a bus and you could do something and not get hit by the bus, would you, would you help them not get hit by the bus? How much worse is hell? Right? How, how much do you have to hate somebody to not tell them about Jesus? If we actually believe what we believe. So then you have to step back and go, do we actually believe what we believe? That's pretty uncomfortable. 
right? Just what the book says, guys. All right. So that closes the, that closes the second cycle. Wow. We are going to be here till Saturday. All right. We'll get rolling. Okay, third cycle is 22 to 26, right? Now the volume really pumps up. Eliphaz has, has had it and makes three strong and wrong accusations of Job. First, he declares Job is evil, right? In verses, in, in verses um, 1 through 11, uh, particularly Job 22, 5, where he says, Is not your evil abundant? There is no end to your iniquities. Um, particularly the sin of pride, covetousness, and lack of mercy and compassion. That's a fun thing to accuse people of. Next, he claims Job is hiding his sin. And third, that Job must repent of his sin. Right? Agree with God and be at peace, thereby good will come to you. Because if you do good things for God, he'll do good things for you. Hmm. Maybe that's not how it works, right? Job directs his response to God and not to his friends. Right, as he made clear where his dispute lies. The first of his complaints is that God is hiding from him. That's, Job, that's 23, 1 through 12. Job acknowledges the trials in his life have purified him. I shall come out as gold, he says in verse 10. Job's second complaint to God, that God is frightening him. Uh, Job is frightened and not knowing what test God would throw at him next, which you actually can't really blame him for. Right? Uh, you know, when those people were running up and you saw the next guy running up, I would just say, stop. Just turn around. I don't, I don't want to know anymore. Well, we're, we're good. This doesn't seem to be my day. So, right. And so he's, he just doesn't know what's coming next, right? Job sees injustices in the country, which is verses 1 through 11, crimes in the city, uh, 12 through 17. Job closes his speech with a curse on the wicked, saying that their deed will be answered. But essentially saying, if God won't curse them, I will. So Bildad gives a brief discourse over God's power in, in 25, right? For power for the first three verses and justice in the, last, in the last three. This leads to Job's answer in 26 and then his really long discourse in 27 through 31, right? Job proclaims sarcastically, and by the way, there's dripping sarcasm in this book. Okay, there's dripping. If you, if you like sarcasm, there is dripping sarcasm in this book. So Job uh, answers about how, how helpful Bildad's words are in 1 through 4, and then extols the greatness of God. Um, in 26.14, we, we say, we see but the slightest of God's ways, how mighty they must be. Right? If the glimpse of God we get now, how mighty must he be? Um, then uh, Job puts forth his defense in 27 through 31. Chapters 30 to 27 breaks into Job taking an oath, um, uttering a curse, which is verse 7 through 10, and teaching a lesson. Right? I will teach you concerning, he says in verse 11. As Job prescribes what will happen to his enemies when God vindicates him. Job seeks wisdom in chapter 28, saying it cannot be mined, cannot be bought, but only comes from God. Right? You can't mine wisdom, right? God says, if you want wisdom, what do we do, James? Ask for it. Most of us are too proud to ask. Um, and then it comes and ends in a, in a proverb, right? Of, uh, of and, man, and he said to man, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, to turn away the evil, to turn away from evil is understanding, right? So Job rests his case. In 29, Job reflects on life joy, life's joys, noting his primary joy was God's presence in his home. Let me say that again. Noting his primary joy was God's presence in his home. That's why when everything was gone, what was still there? God's presence. Is your primary joy in following Christ God's presence? 
Is your primary joy in following Christ, God's presence with you? Because that's what's going to get you through the dark moments. That's what's going to get you through hard times, is his presence with you, right? He also speaks of his confidence in the future. Uh, That's Job 18, right? I thought I shall die in my nest and I shall multiply my days as the sand. Right, it's, and really, it's a very, that's, that's one of the very pleasant, 29 is one of the very pleasant chapters in the book. But my, how things have changed. Job now looks it around at his present humiliation. And there's a really cool, if you ever want to do a contrast, 29 and 30 parallel each other. In Job's exaltation, right, all the things that he had, and then 30 and all the ways that he's ruined. And they're, they're parallel in how they do it. And so it's, it's really interesting to see how he says, and he says, Job lists that he has no respect, no blessing, no help, no future, and no ministry. But does it? Job looks ahead to vindication, declaring his innocence from sensual sins, abusing power, trusting in his wealth, and not caring for his enemies. So Job's work, Job rests, right? Job thirty-one forty. The words of Job are ended. Now Elihu pops up, right? An angry Elihu now now uh, appears, both angry angry both with Job because he justified himself rather than God, and with Job's three friends because they had quote found no answer unquote. Elihu waited out of respect for his elders, but now must speak. He enters the debate in chapter thirty-two, saying, "Now he must speak." Elihu challenges Job to a debate in the first seven verses of thirty-three before quoting Job's complaints. Elihu describes that God can speak to man through dreams and visions, suffering and a mediating angel. That's the three chunks in chapter 33. Note that this mediating mediating angel providing a ransom for him sounds like Jesus. And so we get to chapter 34 structure, mimics that of chapter 33, where Elihu challenges Job to a debate, uh, quoted Job's complaint again and answered them with the answer demonstrating the justice of God. Elihu asks why the good deeds of man can add to God. This discourse breaks through, breaks the thought of reciprocity, of a reciprocal relationship with God. That's bad. I'm a mathematician. I should be able to say things like that. Uh, Job 35, 6 and 7, right? If you have sinned, what what do you accomplish against him? And if your transgressions are multiplied, what do you do to him? If you are righteous, what do you give him? Or what does he receive from your hand? There's nothing you can do to add to God. Elihu goes, goes into God's merciful purpose for man, that God disciplines the wicked and exalts righteousness. He extols God's mighty power in nature from autumn. It's beautiful. He goes through the seasons. He goes from autumn to winter to spring to summer. And then Elihu's words were to demonstrate to Job how little God, Job knew of God's ways. Elihu's closing words remind us of how little we know of God. Right? Remember to expose his work. All of mankind has looked onto it. Man beholds it from afar. Um, we're at 34, 6 for a second. The arrogance you get from Elihu, though, is in verse 4, right? Where it says, for truly my words are not false. One who is perfect in knowledge is with you. So he thinks pretty highly of himself, Right? So Job's deliverance, right? So now, now God speaks, to which we all say, rut row. All right. So the, the answer to Job's questions was not an explanation of God, but a revelation of God. 
right? A lot of times the answers to the questions we have are not the answers to the questions, but the presence of God and who he is, right? And so God's first set of questions, chapter 38, verses 1 through 38, come from the realm of creation. And his, que- and his second set of questions from the realm of the animals, right? 39, uh, 38, 39 through 39, 30. These questions toward, you know, can you oversee creation? God demands an answer, and Job recognizes his insufficiency and is silent for God, right? Job 2 and 3 says, what is it this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and make it known to you, right? He challenges Job who he is. And Job says, and the Lord said to Job, shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, but I will not answer. Twice, but I will proceed no further. So God continues with, can you save yourself? Job is asked to subdue the behemoth and the Leviathan. And so again, he challenges with the dress, like action, dress for action, right? And then, uh, then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful me, which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and you will make it known to me. I have heard you by your hearing of the ear, but now, I, now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Right, so the Lord addresses Job's friends, right? And through repentance and Job's prayer, the Lord does not deal with them, quote, according to their folly, unquote. The Lord restores Job's goods and gives him 10 more children. The beauty of the daughters is an emphasis on the fullness of God's provision. As Job died old and, quote, full of days, meaning that his life ended well. Whew. All right. All of Job's friends and Job and Elihu were wrong, right? Why were his friends and Elihu wrong? Um, they understood. I, I, one of the things I did in preparing for this was read a survey of, of the narrative, God narratives that were out there in about 1500 to 2000 BC. And what's pretty fascinating is all of those narratives come to this story. You do something for the gods and the gods will do something for you. Right? And the, the word we've been using through the evening is reciprocity, right? reciprocal. That you do something for God and God does something for you. That is not Yahweh. Let me say that again. That is not Yahweh. So what Job is, is in this day, in this 1500 BC, the distinct nature of God, among the other things worshipped at the time. Isn't that fascinating? This is a statement not about, right? This book isn't about suffering. It's about sovereignty. Right? Because the way we have to, when we we start looking at moral judgments, and this is what Benjamin and I argued for a couple hours on Sunday. And it came, what our argument came back down to was that if you don't believe in the goodness of God, right? If you believe that you know better what's good than God does, you don't believe in his sovereignty. If you don't believe God knows what's good, you don't believe God's sovereign. Right? And the reason that we follow God is because he's sovereign, right? Not because of what he can do for us. Remember I talked about what I said, you know, if you're following God, you can get in heaven, you're not actually following God. That's true because you're following God for what he can do for you. Right? 
And the problem with having a very theological wife, my boys are, are very th- philosophical and theological and get that from both sides. I'm talking with Rachel about this yesterday. She goes, wait a minute. So Job was offering sacrifices at the beginning of this. Isn't that reciprocity? To which I went, uh. So I prayed about it, thought about it. And so this is kind of the conclusion I came to. Job was, was offering those sacrifices out of obedience, not because he can get something. And so we follow God. The reason we do the things God tells us to do is because we obey him. We believe he knows how the world is structured. We believe he knows how the world works. And when you say, I follow Jesus, what you're saying is the way he says the world works, and therefore the things I'm supposed to do is the best way to live. Right? Now, can you do the same things out of obedience or out of reciprocity? Absolutely. What's the difference? Stay your heart. Right? You can offer sacrifices as reciprocity. You can also offer sacrifices out of obedience. Right? It comes back down to our heart. It comes back down to our heart. Isn't that cool? Isn't that amazingly cool? And so we have this God that we are righteous, independent of our circumstances and independent of what we do and independent of what people tell us we are. Right? Because Job was righteous the whole time. Mm. All right. I kept thinking about how to to tie this, this up. And the only thing that I, could, that I found that could speak to this was scripture itself. So we're going to read a lot of scripture. But what this is, right, we as Christians, there's, well, and let's, let's back up for a second. All right. The other, thing, the other thing when we get into suffering is, right, we all deserve, right, we all have you know, sinned and fallen short of God. And we deserve death and hell. And so anything we get is, is right, a gift from God, right? We get that. That's, that's a theological truth. That is not helpful when someone is suffering, Right? That is not helpful when someone is suffering. And the Bible seems to break suffering into a couple of groups. It seems to break suffering. We're going to call this merited and unmerited, understood in the context of what I just said, right? Merited and unmerited. Merited is where we can tie either a sin of commission or omission to the what's just happened, the evil that befalls us, right? That we call that merited because we can make that connection, right? There's unmerited suffering where we can't make that connection. Right? Satan is walking to and fro on the earth. What do you think he's doing? Right? Stuff like this. Right? Satan is walking to and fro on the earth. And that's why stuff like these things happen. Right? But as Christians, as Christ follows, all of our sufferings to the glory of God. All of our sufferings to the glory of God. And we're getting ready to read a bunch of scripture that tells us that. Right? Deuteronomy, I think I've told you, I taught forever. Deuteronomy is probably my favorite book of the Bible just because of the, the depth and understanding. If you'll turn over to Deuteronomy chapter eight, um, and this is Old Testament, so it's gonna talk about commands, right? Obey the commands, right? And that's God's, God speaking of keeping, of, keeping right, of, of the righteousness of God, right? And so Deuteronomy eight, the whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord, your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, 
whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you and your foot did not swell these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord God disciplines you. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs flowing out of the valleys and the hills, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. And there you shall eat and be full and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Take care, lest you forget that the Lord your God, lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, that your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore in your fathers as it is to this day. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so shall you perish because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. Turn to John 16, 33. I have said these things to you that you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Romans 8, 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoptions as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. 
For I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole of creation has been groaning together in in the pains of childbirth until now. But not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we will wait with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he searches the heart and knows what is in the mind of the spirit because the spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that those who love God, for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If it is God for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We were regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, neither angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. And let's pop over to First Peter. We'll, we'll do a couple passages, a few passages out of First Peter, and then then call it a night. First uh, Peter one six through nine. In this you rejoice. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you will be have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Christ, Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. 1 Peter 3, 13 through 17. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sakes, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Have a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. 
First Peter 4.12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon, comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as, as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. For if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of the glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an adulterer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him be not ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous are scarcely is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And then 1 Peter 6 to 11, right? Humble yourselves, therefore, into the mighty hand of God, so that the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. We good? That's a lot. Did that help? That help. All right. Give me a second to recover, and then we'll we'll go to the questions. Uh, oh mercy! Wow, there's a lot of questions. Ugh. All right. So our standard kind of qualifications on the Q and A, right? God's word is infallible. Brian and Jay, fallible. Um, I am not a Hebrew expert. I am not a Job expert, right? I've, I've studied this to the best of my ability, so we'll kind of see what we, what we end up. Um, chapter 1, 6 is troubling in that it appears God invites Satan, Satan's attacks on Job. Is this the case, and does he do that with us? I don't know that he necessarily invited his attacks as much as he presented Job as righteous, and, and Satan wants to tear down anything of God. So I think, I think you know, kind of the adage that anytime you're doing something good for God, he's not the only one that notices is fairly true, right? When it's difficult when you're doing ministry for God, purposes for God, and things are difficult, they're supposed to be, right? And so I'm not sure that God as much invites, I mean, I, I don't think he was kind of dangling him out there as bait. I think his righteousness was tempted, right, to knock down what is of God. And that's Satan's nature, right? He's an accuser, Right? what he wanders around and does. Uh, this has bothered me for a long time. Job's kids appear to be pawns in Job's story to prove a point. Please speak to this. Um, I, I, I mean, yeah, to some extent in the, I don't know if they're necessarily pawns, um, but they were part, they're part of, the, part of the narrative and that's part of the destruction. Is that tragic? Yes. You know, the, 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 narrative, the narrative is about the sovereignty of God, not necessarily about those details, you know, yeah, it bothers you anytime anybody does. I mean, I suppose animal activists are fairly concerned about the sheep that were evaporated, um, right? I mean, and yet it's tragic, but, you know, as is kind of unfortunate, right? People die. 
And people die all kinds of ways, all kinds of time. You know, we're, we're a culture, which is a much longer talk that I've done on how our culture deals with death. And we're really bad at handling death. Uh, we're really, really bad at handling death. And, you know, yeah, I, I guess I would, I would, uh, I would, um, I think pawns is probably a strong term, but, you know, people, people I don't know, most of the places in the, in the world, life is cheap. Um, I, was with, I was in graduate school with uh, a Chinese gentleman, Xing Kong, and he was the only person in his village of uh, 11 million people that had been, ever been out of the village. And he was here, and he, he asked me, there was some, a death of somebody, this is the early 90s, there was a death of somebody, and he said, why are you so worried about, there was, I think it was a natural disaster and three or four people died in a tornado. I said, why do you guys worry about that? He says, where we're from, says 100,000 people die, it's more food for us. So, uh, you know, life is pretty cheap. You know, Benjamin, when he was in Cambodia, had to have somebody escort him so somebody, somebody wouldn't kidnap him. I mean, it, we didn't know that until he got back, praise God, because that would not have settled very well on me or his mom. Right? But life is cheap in most of the world. Uh, who are the sons of God? I don't know. Um, I don't know. 37.6. Uh, glory to God about your mom. Yeah, amen. Yeah, I, I, was, I was very blessed to be raised by two very faithful people that, that absolutely lived out. Is Leviathan a dinosaur? There are all kinds of theories about the Leviathan. I think the Leviathan was a hippopotamus. One of them was a hippopotamus. One was a crocodile. That's what most scholars land on. Um, so I don't think it was a dinosaur. I, I, haven't, I haven't seen that. I didn't see that at least in any propensity throughout the stuff that I studied. And I study a lot of stuff. Uh, has it been debated if Job is allegorical? It absolutely has been debated about Job is allegorical. Uh, there are other places in scriptures that refer to Job. And so, and he's generally referred to in a list of other people. And so you don't usually go my Aunt Betty, Uncle Bob, and Superman, right? Not typically how we list things. Um, so it, it's, it's generally thought that Job was, was a, a living person, um, Rather than a, rather than kind of a, a narrative, a narrative. It, obviously some of the writing did they speak in prose to each other? Probably not. But there's a lot of those things that you write stylistically anyway, even though they're real events. Um, how is it that Satan can approach God? Uh, no idea. Says, says he can't. Says he was in his presence. Um, he was certainly in his presence at some point before he fell. After he fell, apparently he was continued to be in his presence at some points. Uh, I don't I, I don't know that scripture. Uh, speak, speaks as Satan, one being or multiple evil beings. Was this the same Satan in the fall or another being? I would assume it's the same Satan uh, from, from everything that I've seen. Again, hold that loosely. If you want to argue with me about it, come on up. You got a good argument. We're good to go. Uh, I don't think scripture speaks clearly to that. Um, what time is it? Holy cow, it's 7.55. I got to let you guys go. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Um, I hope this. I hope this was helpful. I hope this was useful. This was. There was a lot 
put into this. And so I hope that the Holy Spirit has pricked your heart and that you will get from him what he needs you to receive. And, and, so that, and so Christ will continue to work in us. Let's pray. Father God, we're thankful. Thankful for your grace. Thankful for your son that saves us. Father, thankful for this word. And this is hard, Father. Uh, these are hard words. This is hard material, Father. But your glory comes through and your sovereignty comes through, Father, and, they, and, and that you love us and that you tell us who we are, Father. And so bless us to be a people that live in what you tell us, that, that trust your word so much that we stake our very life on it that we stake the way we live, the way we interact with people, the way we interact with each other on who you say we are. And so, Father, let us clearly hear your voice, clearly hear your call, clearly hear it in your word when you tell us who we are and you tell us that we are pure and that we are righteous and that we are beautiful and that we are loved. And, Father, let us live that way. Change us. Uh, Let us not be the same people that walked in that walked out. It's in the precious name of Christ Jesus that we pray. Amen. Thank you.